Picking us up very, very close, in fact, to the end of the book of Revelation. We're going to have a look at uh, uh, chapters uh, 21 and the first half of chapter 22 this morning. Uh, You'll know if you've been with us that uh, we have... I don't know why I'm feeling so hot, but I am. I don't know why I'm now for for some months. And uh, we finally got to the bit, the culmination of the book which is really uh, very, very exciting, and we're going to be looking at that this morning. Let me just read a few verses from chapter 21. John tells us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Let's pray, shall we? Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the way that you have helped us to understand this book. Uh, We sense uh, uh, it still holds many mysteries for us. We have uh, seen so much from it. And we pray as we come to this passage, Lord, that you would open our eyes and, Lord, open our hearts so that we would be people who are profoundly shaped by the hope that you offer us. Lord, we each one as an individual comes to you with our own particular background, our own particular needs, and we know, Lord, that you know each one of those. So we pray that for each of us personally, you would minister your grace this morning as we read your word. We ask it for your glory's sake. Amen. Uh, this week, Judy and I were um, watching an episode of the uh, television series Finest Hour. I don't know whether you've uh, been seeing any of it. It's about the Second World War. And the program contained a long piece in which a lady described how, as a child, she had been on one of the uh, uh, boats that uh, uh, evacuated children at the beginning of the war boat she was on was torpedoed and sunk. 
And for a whole day, she and another girl clung to uh, uh, an upturned lifeboat. She said the only thing that kept her going, that kept her hanging on during that day on that boat, was an absolute determination that she was going to tell her parents what had happened. It reminded me how much people need hope to stay alive. We need something to live for. Animals, uh, by and large, are content if their uh, stomachs are, are full. But we need instinctively something more. A particular thing that, that, that uh, uh, keeps an individual going is always unique to them. But you can ask broader questions about what keeps whole societies going. What, what hope is it? About the that 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 drives a particular group of people, and actually, I think we live in a very fascinating time and a very fascinating place to ask that question of ourselves as a community, as a uh, uh, an East Oxford community, because for most of this century, actually, the economy of East Oxford has been driven by a particular hope that has been uh, very dominant for a long time, that our own ingenuity, that mankind, by, by our technological know-how and by, by uh, um, uh, cooperating together, can create a better world. This century, the private motor car has been one of the great icons of that hope. And, of course, East Oxford has been very much involved with uh, the development of the motor car. When William Morris was making his uh, first cars in Cowley, nearly everyone believed that our, base, our, our greatest hope lay in our ability to create a wonderful new world with modern technology. Today, in a time when our lives have been, been improved far beyond what William Morris, I think, could have dreamed of, there has ironically been a major reaction against that. And another hope has tended to rise to the fore. More and more people actually are deeply suspicious of, uh, of technology. More and more people feel that, that in fact our technological progress should be restrained. Just look at people's concerns about pollution from cars, for instance, and you'll see that. More and more people think that our real hope lies in being in tune with nature. If only we got our, our relationship with nature right, they say, then, the, then we would be okay. If you look at uh, East Oxford, it's actually been at the forefront of that shift, I think. Uh, there are a few places in the country, I think, where there is more political influence by the Green Party. Or you just walk down the Cowley Road. I don't know whether you've done that recently. You'll see alongside ubiquitous health food shops and so on, you will see a veterinary surgery that's advertising herbal remedies. And uh, you will see a shop that's devoted entirely to Chinese uh, uh, traditional medicine, which of course is largely herbal. See, uh, we live in a time when people are wondering whether that old hope that mankind as a, as a body with all our ingenuity 
it's really going to make the difference that we thought it was. More and more people are saying, no, maybe we need to look at nature and see our hope there. What I want to tell you this morning from the, the Bible is that both of those hopes have actually caught a glimpse of something very, very important, very, very wonderful. But, but uh, actually, both of those hopes, if they are just focused on this world, are ultimately no hope at all. They are deeply, deeply flawed. People working together, creating new things, can, uh, in some senses, offer the prospect of a wonderful new world. But then we find in experience that mankind is so flawed, society is so divided, people are so selfish, that such visions always fall about our ears in a welter of uh, pollution and war and, and inhumanity. We, uh, and nature as well itself is, is powerful and beautiful and wonderful. But actually, uh, if we put all our hope in nature, we find uh, that it is cursed by mankind's failure in such a way that uh, the dream of living in tune with nature perfectly in this world is an illusion. Now, the Bible offers a far, far more radical hope than that, which actually knocks all other radical hopes into, into a, a obscurity. The Bible says that ultimately, the only hope worth having is that God will make the whole of this world totally new. And in doing that, he will renew human society so that finally all that imaginative brilliance that there is in this world can work in a perfect and wonderful way. And he will renew nature so that all the beauty that we see in nature finally, in fact, comes to its full flowering. John describes that, that recreation at the end of time, after Christ has come again, as a, a new heaven and a new earth. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth, heaven and the first earth had passed away. And uh, that new heaven and new earth is actually described in the next uh, verses with two Images. The image of a city, the image of a garden. That's what I want you to see. The image of a city and the image of a garden to describe what that future holds for us. Actually, Revelation has already spoken about the city, hasn't it? If you've been here over the last few, few weeks, you will know that the, the seductive power of evil in this world was described as being like a city, like Babylon, actually, which uh, was notorious as a city opposed to God. And that has been destroyed. But God's good purpose for his creation is also described as a city. It's called the New Jerusalem. This city has, has 12 gates, 
we are told. Look at uh, chapter 21, verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper, clear, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, uh, uh, these gates, we are told in verse 25, are always open, never closed, because, as it says, it's never night. City gates, you see, were closed at night as security against uh, villains or opposing armies. But there is no opposition in heaven. The people of God then don't need to hide behind these walls. The people of God, symbolized by the, the 12 tribes of Israel that are on the names of the, uh, of the gates, are free to come and go as they please at any time they like. The gates are open. This is not a besieged city. This is a free city. And the city has 12 foundations, each with the name of one of the apostles on it, symbolizing uh, the solidity and security of this new society, the church, built on the teaching of the apostles, built on a firm foundation. Perhaps more than anything else, though, John wants us to see the, the beauty and perfection and actually the sheer enormous size of this city. It's actually a cube. 1,400 miles long and wide and high. A cube's a, a perfect three-dimensional shape, you see. It's symmetrical in all, all three planes. John's not giving us architect's plans for heaven, is he? It would be impossible, in fact, to, to, to try to draw some of these images if he were. No, he knows that the reality of heaven is more than our mortal minds can grasp. So he's giving us images to help us to imagine what God's recreated universe could really be like. And he is saying it will be absolutely awesome, absolutely perfect, absolutely beautiful. Verse 18. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, carnelian the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. What extraordinary beauty he wants us to imagine. A whole gate made of a pearl. A city, a, a street in the city, paved with gold so pure it shines like glass. I don't know whether you saw that... Uh, um, Ariane rocket that took up the, uh, uh, the telescope this week. They showed the mirrors on that, uh, that telescope that were, were, were so smooth 
I think they were that they were uh, smooth to a, a tiny, tiny fraction of a, a millimeter. Well, says John, that sort of perfection is over the whole street of that great city. So that there is not an ounce of distortion as you look at it. It shines like glass. And in the center of this wonderful, beautiful, perfect city is what? Well, in the center of Jerusalem, you would expect to find a temple, the temple where God dwelt. But funnily enough, this new Jerusalem is different. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Here is God not now confined behind the walls of a temple. He doesn't need to be hidden away. He is fully, openly present. See, a major function of the temple in, uh, in Old Testament Jerusalem was to protect people from the presence of God. If, uh, if they saw God, then their imperfections would mean that they would be destroyed, even if they caught the tiniest glimpse of him. I don't know whether you've ever seen uh, any of these recreations of the effect of a, of a nuclear bomb. There is a flash so bright when a nuclear bomb goes off that, that everything in a wide area around it in a moment is turned to flame because of the unbearable heat of it. Well, um, that acts as just a little illustration, an image of what it would mean to come into the presence of God with our sins unforgiven. But in heaven, in heaven, those who have faith, those who are there, are forgiven. Christ, by his death on the cross, has fully forgiven them. And their hearts now have been perfectly renewed so that there is no longer any tendency to sin. So extraordinary as it may seem, in heaven, people can stand in the presence of God. And now the light that comes from him is not something that incinerates them, but something that gloriously illuminates their lives. into this, this, this wonderful, perfect, enormous, brilliantly lit place, says John, all the very best things of human society on earth are taken. See that verse 26? The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. When God creates his new heaven and new earth, he will, he will strip away all the dross which contaminates every culture, but every culture, says John, will contribute to the glorious, rich, perfect diversity which is heaven. God will populate it with people from every tribe and nation who have worshipped Jesus Christ and they will bring the very best things of their cultural background with them. Verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life people whom God has chosen, the people who have faith, will enter it in all their wonderful diversity.
You know, some people think that heaven is going to be a rather inhibited place, don't they? They think that it, uh, right now they are enjoying doing their own thing and they don't look forward to heaven much because um, there we'll have to do absolutely what God tells us, won't we? But you see, it won't be inhibited. Not at all. Every image of eternity that the Bible gives us pictures us freely doing what we want to do. What we will lose in heaven is not our liberty, but our tendency to abuse our liberty so that we enslave ourselves. You know, right now, God has to close certain doors around us and say, do not do that. But when our hearts are perfectly renewed, all gates will be open. And we will be free to go wherever we wish, secure in the knowledge that there is no longer any evil, no longer any sin to trap us. And some people think that heaven will be a boring, monotonous place, don't they? A sense that the removal of sin and evil will, will reduce everyone to being two-dimensional plastic saints, just, uh, just uh, sitting around on our, on our clouds strumming our harps. Nothing could be further from the truth. No, all the riches and diversity, all the beauty of human society that we now see will be expressed there. There's not just going to be harps in heaven, you know. There's going to be drums and electric guitars and sitars. We're not just going to eat manna in heaven, you know, as if uh, we just had to eat the same thing again and again. No, there are going to be biryanis in heaven, shish kebabs. Chow mein's, English beef, on the bone, <laughs> that we will sit down and eat with our French brothers and sisters. <laughs> That's what heaven is like. Don't be deceived by these misunderstandings. That want to make that to just persuade you that heaven is going to be some some. Some desperately um, thin, transparent, weedy sort of place. It is more solid than our existence now and more diversely enjoyable. What we lose are all the misunderstandings, all the tensions, all the jealousies, all the narrowness of our own personal tastes we will gain all the riches and diversity of this world and the nations that God has created. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. And when you walk down the Cowley Road, you're actually looking at both that evil city, Babylon, that we saw a couple of weeks ago, which is destined for judgment and destruction, and the first hints of the new Jerusalem in all its diverse cultures. Sadly, until Jesus comes again, the Cowley Road and every other place will be a place that has to remain a mixture. But don't write it off. Love the good things about this world because they will flourish gloriously 
in the world to come. John uses this image then of a new city to help us to see this this gloriously renewed society. But then he moves on in chapter 22 to use another image, an image of a new garden. In fact, uh, the Garden of Eden. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The last time that actually uh, the Bible uh, depicted the tree of life was all the way back in the book of uh, Genesis, chapter 3. There it stood at the center of the Garden of of Eden. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they were barred from the garden, and especially they were barred from that tree. The Garden of Eden, as well, was a a place with a river flowing through it. And, And those two images both reappear now. It's not actually a separate vision, if you look at it closely. No, we're still in the New Jerusalem. But John wants to say the New Jerusalem is a garden city. The river flows down the middle of the main street. The the tree straddles the river. The natural world, in all its beauty, all its fruitfulness, will be found in God's new creation. For the people of God, at last, there will be eternal life, just as there had been before mankind sinned. At last, there will be eternal satisfaction for their thirst, the water of life, which flows from the throne of God, clear as crystal. Everlasting nourishment will be theirs. The tree bears 12 crops of fruit, perhaps the 12, because it will feed the 12 tribes of Israel, which, are the, which is a, a symbol in Revelation so often just for the people of God. But also 12 because they bear fruit all the year round. Fruit every month of the year. Fresh, health-giving, life-giving fruit is there. More than that, these trees, actually, uh, this this tree, the leaves of the tree, are medicinal. Isn't that interesting? The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, we see. See, in the Garden of, of Eden, death came into the world. To all nations, all people. Ever since that uh, moment, human, mankind and the world has been living with the reality of our, our mortality and all the d- disease and decay that goes with it. Well, now this uh, new tree of life is, is, is brought to us again in heaven. And once, uh, once more, our mortality is gone. We are healed of that infirmity. Mankind is immortal again. The curse of mankind's sin will be history. Verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. Actually, very, very important, that little sentence. See, Adam and Eve, when they first sinned in the garden, were told by uh, God that they would be cursed 
by death, but also that that curse would, uh, would go beyond just them. Uh, God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, the whole of the natural world is cursed because of the sin of the, hu- of, of the human race. And though we may do things to reverse that to some extent, the world is not going to see a full restoration of the glory of nature. Thousands of species of plants and animals have been made extinct by mankind. And no matter how much we hope, we put our hope in, uh, in restoring the balance of nature in this world, we will not bring back those species. You know, the Sahara Desert, you know, is almost certainly man-made. And despite the uh, dreams of some scientists, we are not going to see it grassed over again. No, this world as it is, is irrevocably marred, but not forever. One day that curse will be lifted. In heaven, God's creation will be, will be recreated in, in all its glorious splendor. In fact, more with more splendor than it has ever had before. Now, the prophet Isaiah, in the chapter 11 of his, of his prophecy, was, was trying to explain what he had seen. And he spoke of a leopard lying down next to a goat. He spoke of lions eating straw. He spoke of a, a child playing harmlessly with a, with a cobra and uh, with, with its offspring. He was trying to help us to envisage how, in fact, the savagery of nature itself could be history. Somehow, he says, uh, all the beauty and diversity of nature will be preserved, but without its dark side. Now we can enjoy its beauty, its fragrance, its nourishment, its herbal properties, its wild abundance, without the terror and the death and the extinction. Do you know, I often hear people say they can't get very excited about heaven because they love this world too much. Do you hear that? Well, of course, if we love its brokenness, if we love its crop failures, if we love deforestation and ozone depletion and oil pollution, then we won't get very excited about heaven. Because those things will be history. But if we love the colour of the meadow flowers on a summer day, if we love the smell of lavender, if we love to look over the vast beauty of the ocean, if we love to see the enormous variety of birds and animals and insects, if we uh, uh, love those things, then we cannot help but get incredibly excited about heaven. Because those things will be recreated. When God made the world, he made a garden. When he makes the new world, he is not going to make a whitewashed cell. God's final purpose, then, is incredibly exciting and glorious. Picture of a new city, a perfected community, with all its diversity brought together in God's presence. It's a picture of a new garden. Nature itself has no curse. 
But all of that is prefaced by uh, some very important verses that we can do no more than glance at uh, for a little while this morning that we read right at the beginning, the first eight verses of chapter 21. Because before he elaborates on the new city and the new garden, he starts to uh, uh, describe those things, but in the context of the need that we have to make a vital choice. Could have spent the whole of our time, if we'd wanted to, on the first six verses of chapter, chapter 21. John tells us, for instance, that the new city is dressed as a bride. Remember, 1,400 miles cube, was it? Dressed as a bride. I mean, what, what, how, we, how we are to imagine that, I, I do not know. It is fantastic imagery. But there it is, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. She's a bride because she is going to be united with God. Verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We have the... Everyone has high hopes of marriage, don't they? Everyone, uh, almost without exception, feels that longing for a, a perfect union, a sense of intimacy, a sense of no secrets, a sense of being perfectly secure, a sense of being able to go to someone for comfort, go to someone for love, go to someone just to have tears wiped from our eyes. But sadly, uh, even the very best marriages in this world are but a vague shadow of that. That longing that we have will be fulfilled in eternity. And God himself will be a husband to each one of us. She is described as a bride because she is going to be united with God. But she is described as a bride as well, because as with all brides, she must accept the proposal of marriage. See how it moves on in verse uh, 6? To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. To him who is thirsty. Extraordinary offer, isn't it? Any person who has a thirst, any person who has a need, 
any person who feels in their hearts this longing for a better world, this, this thirst for a new city, a renewed community, a, a perfectly harmonious, diverse collection of cultures, any person who sees the best things about East Oxford and says, I long to see that preserved and makes perfect, uh, and made perfect, any person who has a, a, a vision for that is being invited. Any person as well who has a, has a thirst for this, this new garden, this renewed nature, this, this curseless ecosystem, anyone who's, anyone who's walked in the hills or, or sat by the sea or, cl or climbed on top of a mountain and say, I long to see this preserved and made perfect, that offer is for them. But there is a choice. It is offered, but it must be accepted. The proposal is there, but she must say, I do. In John's language, there is a choice that we must make to overcome. See that in verse 7? He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. John has told us again and again throughout Revelation, if you've been here, that there are powerful voices in this world that would drag us away from this solid hope towards the false hopes that seem so much real, as more real and so much more immediate and so much more attractive, and yet which seduce us and ultimately toss us away with our hopes dashed. John, John says, no, people must have the character to make a choice if this real solid vision is to be theirs. Verse 8, he actually gives us a list of people who will not be found in the new heaven and the new earth, will not be part of this new city, will not be part of this renewed creation. And he heads that list with two types of people who are, are very, very much in his mind as he writes the book. First type of person who will not inherit these things is the cowardly person. Because if we've read this book, we know it takes courage to walk that path, doesn't it? The path of true hope is not easy. You got that courage? We need courage to face the opposition. We need courage sometimes to face ourselves. We need courage to live for eternity. Have you got that courage? Second group of people who will not inherit this are, are those whom John calls the unbelieving because it takes faith to walk the path of true hope. Faith which says, God, I believe what you're telling me here. Because have, the, have no doubt, the more immediate hopes will be much easier to grasp and to see. Only the people who actually believe God, that he is telling the truth, end up in heaven. 
Have you got that faith? See, uh, John has now described the whole of history and beyond into eternity. If you've, if you've been here, you have now seen what he has told us in these, these vivid, stunning images in the book of Revelation. And now he says at the end, do you believe that? Or is it just a load of codswallop? Because it will cost your life, he says. To believe it. You will have to invest your whole life in this hope. But he says, this hope is solid. This hope is all that you ever wanted. This hope will keep you hanging on, like that little girl hanging on to the uh, upturned lifeboat as she waited for rescue to come. This hope will keep you there will keep you grasping the lifeboat, will in the end satisfy you. Do you believe that?